0: Welcome to Reframing Our Stories, the podcast. This podcast is about provocative conversations with beautiful thinkers about topics that matter and the stories that have helped them reframe their lives. Grab something cozy or put on your walking shoes and let's reframe. We hope that you are enjoying the Reframing Our Stories podcast, and if you are, please consider then pressing subscribe or leaving us a rating or a comment so that others can find us. Also, if you are interested in sharing your story on the Reframing Our Stories podcast, please again, reach out to us. Uh, You can do that through our website, www.reframingourstories.com, and we would love to get in contact with you and hopefully have you on our show. It has become a privilege for me to teach kids and youth about sexual health. However, what makes it more of a joy is when I'm able to round out that experience by providing education for the whole family. More than ever lately, I'm hearing from the mothers of these children and they say this, Kara, we need to get something together and talk about menopause. I'm struggling over here. So many women don't have the education or full understanding about what happens to our bodies and why in relation to menopause and perimenopause. We are confused, stressed out and sweating. We need more help with this. Jen Salib Huber provides help for women in learning more about menopause with a focus on nutrition and hormone support. Jen is a registered dietitian, naturopathic doctor, and intuitive eating coach. She has her own podcast called The Midlife Feast, and she works with women one-on-one and in groups to help them learn about their bodies with a focus of an undiet culture. Jen, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Kara. Yeah, this is, I mean, every woman that I know is just like, what's up with menopause? <laughs> what's up with perimenopause? Is this a symptom? I'm starting to feel strange. So I love that you're doing this and you come at your approach to talking to women about their bodies and nutrition from an undiet perspective. So what does that mean for you and why do you believe that that is important?
1: Yeah. So There's, you know, I think that a lot of people are maybe familiar with the terms anti-diet or, you know, the, the idea of kind of ditching diet culture, intuitive eating, mindful eating. But a few years ago, I came across this term undieting and it really resonated with the work that I was doing. It was kind of finally putting a word to the work that I was doing, because I think that many people who have been in diet culture for a long time, meaning that they have engaged in dieting, been around people who are dieting, have looked to food rules, have moralized food, try to make good choices, you know, not make bad choices, even if they're not dieting, if they're always thinking about food and trying to make decisions about food, they're in diet culture. So I think that a lot of people will get to this place of midlife and say, I'm kind of done with that. But then it's it's this question of well, then what? What do I do once I decide that I'm I'm done with diet culture? How you know it's so this process of undieting is really unlearning mm-hmm. what you believe about food, how it affects your health, how much you need to think about it, what matters, what doesn't, how flexible can you be? So that's why I really you know use that term a lot because I think it describes the process of moving into an anti-diet space that we all have to go through. And everybody comes to this space with their own baggage, as I call it, you know, and their own experiences and, um, you know, their own lived experience, but also just the experience of living in diet culture. And so I think that dieting allows us to have our own path to get to that place where we're no longer looking to diet culture to decide what we're going to eat.
0: So, how do you take someone through that process? Because <laughs> I will just be really honest and <laughs> say I have a terrible issue with food, where I have conducted an emotional, you know, uh, response to it. I put it in the good and bad categories. I said in a in an earlier podcast that this is like the area I think I carry the most shame around, especially with my children, because I i say words and i'm like oh no <laughs> i like, don't say cuz i want them it to have like, like a, a better relationship right with it than i do so what's that yeah. unlearning process look like for people
1: well for women in midlife which is really kind of you know the, the the area that i focus on the most i have these four pillars of intuitive nutrition that really kind of lay the the groundwork for for what we do and the first is understanding And so understanding not just what's happening in perimenopause and menopause, but also understanding where our beliefs have come from. So understanding our, you know, early childhood influences, Mm -hmm. um, you know, if we had family members who were always on a diet, if we had maybe mothers who took us to Weight Watchers meetings or mothers who never had dessert or, you know... Other people in our family that maybe hid food and snuck food and said things, you know, like, oh, don't tell your mother that I'm having this. Like there was, there's a lot of early influences, I think, on our beliefs about food. And so understanding where those beliefs have come from Mm -hmm. and then being able to hold them up and say, are these true? are these true in general, like in a black and white kind of way, but are they also, are they true for me and have they served me and are they still serving me? And if they're not, what do I need to change and why? So a lot of it is reflection. And that understanding is reflecting on our beliefs and our experiences matched with the needs of our body today. And so we, once we kind of go through that process, we really are leaning into self compassion because there needs to be so much self compassion for you know again if you've had a lot of early childhood influences on your relationship with food these have been you know kind of programmed into you and you know you didn't consent to it necessarily right. <laughs> and so you have to understand that you know that that programming has been at play for often decades and you know, there has to be self compassion for that but also self compassion for a changing body because the message that we've received You know, through all everyone's life, is that you, whatever weight you're at at 18 is probably where you should be for the rest of your life. It's kind of like height, Mm -hmm. right? You reach a certain height and that's where you should stay. And, but we know that bodies change for all different kinds of reasons and that weight is not a behavior. So we have to have self compassion Mm -hmm. for this fact that our weight isn't as under our control as we've been led to believe and that sometimes it changes for reasons that we can't control and we have to have self-compassion for that. So once we move through self-compassion, we can then start to build on school, the tools of, you know, attunement. So how do I learn to listen now that I've deprogrammed now that I can see where all of my beliefs and influences and kind of, you know, default behaviors have come from. And I can now move into this space with self-compassion and realize it's not my fault. I'm not a bad person. You know, how can I actually learn to listen Mm -hmm. if I'm not following a plan? If I'm not logging all my food, if I'm not counting all my calories, How do I actually learn to listen when I'm hungry, when I'm full, what do I need? What do I want? And that really extends to beyond food, because we also have to be able to listen to, are my other needs being met? Are my needs for connection being met? Are my needs for joy, entertainment, pleasure, rest? And if they're not, it's very difficult to feel attuned to hunger and fullness. And once we've worked through that process, we can then circle back to gentle nutrition because of course food matters. You know, I love talking about food. It's literally my life. And, you know, but it not, it doesn't matter in the way that we've been led to believe because a relationship with food that nourishes all parts of us has to be flexible and forgiving. It can't be rule-based. It can't be all or nothing. It can't be black or white. It has to be flexible and forgiving. Okay. First, I love that phrase, (laughs) flexible and forgiving.
0: (laughs) But then I feel like you touched upon something like last night, I I started to do a talk around body positivity and around social media for parents with youth. And it made me really start to reflect on what is body positivity, right? Because oftentimes, right, it's like recognizing different shapes and sizes and giving space for, for everyone and getting rid of this idea, right, that we're supposed to look a certain way. But I think it's more... I came to this realization that it's more than that. And I think you touched upon that where it's, we live so much now, I think detached from our bodies. Like we're constant, we're very cerebral. We're very much paying attention to these devices that kind of disconnect us from our body and what the signals from our body is telling us. And so for me, I'm recognizing, I think body positivity is being present with our bodies to be able to hear what they are telling us to be able to recognize what cues am I hearing right even from the gut instinct kind of perspective from sore muscles and what is that telling me to Like, you know like just being in tune to it and so I feel like that it sounds to me from what you're saying is a lot of what you are helping people with is like getting back into our body in a way where we're not looking at it as an object.
1: Absolutely. And that actually has a term and it's called body neutrality. So if, you know, Mm -hmm. body neutrality is this idea that how we feel about our bodies, Mm -hmm. how it looks in the mirror, how, you know, clothes fit shouldn't be driving the bus of our self-image. Right. It's how we feel in our bodies Mm -hmm. that really should be in the driver's seat. And it's very difficult to kind of move into that space if you have spent your whole life trying to control how your body looks. Mm-hmm. And so body positivity is is important. It absolutely is. But just like we wouldn't tell someone with depression that they should be happy all the time. Right. We want to help people develop resiliency so that when they're having a bad body image day,
0: mm-hmm. that
1: it doesn't take over because we're all going to have days right. when we don't feel our best in our body. Just like we have bad hair days, right? Mm-hmm. If you have a bad hair day, you throw on a hat, put on a ponytail and you go about your day
0: because yeah.
1: you know that tomorrow is a new day. And that's kind of how we how I work anyway with you know women who are in changing bodies in midlife who very much feel like this is something that's being done to them mm-hmm. that they have no control over and it's scary and if they've spent their whole life trying to control their body mm. it feels unfathomable that they can actually exist in a larger body and feel good about themselves right so that's kind of where you know I really try and just insert that little that Seed of, but what if you could? I know you feel like you can't, but what if you could? Like, Mm -hmm. what else could you do with your life if you weren't trying to make yourself smaller all the time? I mean, so many things, so many things.
0: (laughs) I wonder if we could, if there was a way to calculate the hours that are spent thinking about food, thinking about our bodies. Do you have?
1: (laughs) Do you know that? Well, there's actually. There's actually some interesting statistics and there's surveys and I wouldn't call them like, you know, they're, they're sure there's some methodological flaws and, you know, that kind sure. of stuff, but, uh, you know, the average 45 year old woman has been on 61 diets, 61 diets. Yeah. And I have read other numbers that, um, you know, women on average spend 17 years of their life tracking food. It just makes me so- feel ragey. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. It does. It does. Because
1: the thing is, is that we know that these things don't work. So we know that diets don't work in the way that we've been led to believe, mm-hmm. meaning that in the first three to six months, which is the bulk of where the research is. So when some, when a new headline hits the news and says diet XYZ works better than diet ABC, mm-hmm. generally these are studies that are six, 12 weeks, maybe three to six months. And when we look at them, you know, compare them in that frame of reference, they're all the same. They all quote unquote work, but after six months, they all start to not work. Mm. And by 12 months, there really isn't any effectiveness to following a particular diet or set of rules for the purposes of intentional weight loss. And, you know, I use that word really specifically because there can be benefits to choosing foods intentionally. Let's use the example of the Mediterranean diet. We can absolutely see changes in measurable health outcomes related to blood sugar and cholesterol and inflammation and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But that has nothing to do with weight but when we're looking at studies and when we're looking at choosing foods for the purposes of intentional weight loss, they don't work. Um, you know, and most people will have heard study those numbers of like, you know, 95% of diets fail, meaning that at 12 months, two years, or five years of which there are very few, we really don't see anyone who's able to maintain it. And that's probably because 70% of our size and shape is genetically determined, meaning that our, not just our metabolism, but everything from how much muscle we have, how, you know, how easy it is to build muscle, the percentage of body fat that our body is happiest at, um, which likely reflects like our set point, um, you know, everything from the width of our shoulders to the width of our hips. And, you know, you can't diet and exercise your way into someone else's body. And we have to stop telling people that they can.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. I kind of got into a point for myself as I, I, I'm going to admit that I am on feels like I am on diet right now because I am doing different things to try to change the way that I'm eating and stuff because, and part of it is because um, I'm recognizing that there's a lot of type two diabetes that is happening in my family. And so I'm just kind of being a little more mindful with some of my choices, but I've also I have engaged in these processes for a while. And have recognized my body is not responding And then I've kind of thought to myself, (laughs) I wonder if this is just where my body feels good at, you know, I, I mean, I'm moving more and doing stuff and I have a lot of energy. I'm feeling much better, but it doesn't look like I'm doing anything, but I know that inside my body is feeling better. And I've kind of like, you know, I'm still living into this mindset of everything that you talked about of like, oh, I'm supposed to be like this. And, you know, all those messages, but I'm also recognizing this might just be my body. (laughs) Like this is, this is my shape and learning to have a, a little more grace with her and being like, okay, like, how do I feel good with her? And what, what makes me feel, you know, like, what about her do I appreciate and things like that. Right. Instead of constantly having negative conversations with myself you know, because it's, it's exhausting number one. And two, there's a lot more things I want to do in my life instead of (laughs) spending this time having negative conversations about the standard that someone created around
1: body. Yeah. And I mean, we, we often talk about in the anti-diet space about, you know, the best weight is the weight that you can achieve and maintain without having to micromanage it. Of yeah. course, it's not a number. It's a likely a range. Most of us have that experience of being at a particular body shape or size that we don't have to work at, mm-hmm. but it's often not where we think we should be or where we want to be. Mm-hmm. But if we can practice that attunement of, okay, maybe it's not where I thought I wanted to be or what I was where I was trying to get, but yeah, I have lots of energy. I can do the things that I want to do. I feel good. This is maintainable. I don't have to, you know, be thinking about it all the time. I can say yes to going out to dinner spontaneously without packing my own supper in my bag.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, like there's there's a quality of life that comes with that flexible and forgiving relationship with food that can't really be achieved or maintained when you're following food rules. Mm-hmm.
0: So fascinating, yeah. right? So then is, what go ahead.
1: And I was just going to say, you know, oftentimes I think when we stop and reflect on what are the things about how we're eating, whether it's for intentional weight loss or not that feel good, it's often the basics, right? We're cooking more, we're having more balanced meals, we're getting more plants on our plate. Maybe we have a bit more of a focus on something like protein or fiber. And those are all great things. Like, you know, those are things that we can choose intentionally. We can make the focus of gentle nutrition and absolutely are associated with better health. But when we do those things and are using weight loss as a measure of success, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't work, quote unquote work, we think that there's no value in doing those. We devalue and deprioritize them. Yeah. And so the very things that may actually improve our health, we will stop doing or may not want to do because they didn't move the needle on the scale. Mm. So when we talk about, you know, health at every size and that weight neutral approach, what we're talking about is yes, I want to help you eat more vegetables and I want to help you learn to cook and I want to help you build balanced plates, but we have to remove weight out of the equation. Mm. because otherwise it is always going to be the measure of success or failure because Mm. we simply don't exist in a culture where we can have two parallel paths and not value one more than the other. Mm. Weight loss is always the path that is valued, unfortunately.
0: That's so fascinating. And again, it goes back to being present in your body, right? (laughs) Recognizing, you know, like, Oh, my body feels good right now. Like this should be the measure, right? How we're experiencing our body Are your joints hurting less, you know, things like this. Like, are you years
1: ago? I've shared this story a few times. Um, hopefully I'm not getting to that point where I'm just repeating the same stories over and over (laughs) again, but Um, early Early on in my kind of intuitive eating, um, career, which really came about 15 years into my practice. So I practiced very much as a conventional, um, you know, practitioner where, you know, wheat was often the health outcome that I was not only prescribing, but like promoting Mm -hmm. and that, you know, food was really just about managing calories. So early on though, into my intuitive eating practice, Someone that I was working with had started training, you know, for the first time ever for a 5k run, had joined a running club, had spent three months, coached to 5k, ran this spring run. And with this group of people that she'd been running with three times a week, and she came back from, you know, the first race that she did. And I said, Oh, how was it? And she said, Oh, it was fine, but I'm never doing that again. And I thought, well, well, why, what are you talking about? And it was because she had only joined it on January 1st because she wanted to lose weight. And so she thought if I join this group and I run this 5K, surely I'll lose however many pounds that she thought she'd lose. And when she didn't lose any, she gave up on running. Even though she now had a dot, she had picked up a new habit in her forties, had found a group of people that she liked spending time with, had a lot of fun, but couldn't see the value in all of that because it didn't help her reach that goal. Hmm. So that's why, you know, when people say, well, why can't I do intuitive eating and try and lose weight? Like what's wrong with that? Again, it comes back to, you really can't pursue intentional weight loss while trying to adopt a weight neutral approach to health, because, you know, one is always going to bully the other.
0: That's fascinating. So can you explain more about intuitive nutrition and stuff for people who are like, okay, I hear this word a lot, explain more about what that means.
1: Yeah. So intuitive eating is a framework that was developed by two dietitians, Evelyn Trebley and Elise Reich in the 90s, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there's hundreds of studies now that support this evidence-based way of teaching people to eat essentially. And it is a framework that I use as part of kind of my undieting process, but essentially it's, you know, teaching people to to ditch the diet mentality and adopt the anti-diet mentality that we don't have to count and track and measure all the time. Um, And it teaches us about, you know, learning to listen to hunger and honoring all types of hunger, not just physical hunger, but also emotional hunger and taste hunger. And what does it mean to respect fullness and how do we prioritize satisfaction? Mm. And, but it also acknowledges, you know, the, the genetics of health, and also acknowledges how important it is for us to welcome and include movement that we call joyful movement as part of that, you know, relationship with food that isn't based on trying to manipulate that calorie in calorie out equation. So intuitive eating is something that um, I think just appeals to a lot of people because there is still a framework but one of the kind of hiccups or, you know, trap doors that sometimes people fall into is that they will sometimes start trying to use it as a diet. <laughs> and so yeah. they see this, this, these 10 principles and they're like, great, I'm just going to follow these. I'm only going to eat when I'm hungry and I'm always going to stop when I'm full and life will be good. But there's a lot of, you know, the messy middle in there, which is sure. kind of what I think the undieting process that I help people work through just kind of fills in some of those blanks.
0: And isn't a main part of this too of what affects our body it
1: has to do with hormones, right? Certainly, I mean hormones. We all know. I think anybody who um, you know has a uterus and has ovaries has experienced how our body can change significantly from you know week to week, depending on where we're at in our menstrual cycle. Um, we know that as girls enter puberty their body fat percentage has to double in order to achieve and maintain menstruation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we sometimes refer to perimenopause as reverse puberty, (laughs) right? (laughs) Um, because, you know, we're going through a lot of changes and that often does mean body changes and 80% of women in midlife experience body changes. So, you know, again, coming back to self-compassion, it's not just you. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, So what is the, so now that we're kind of talking about perimenopause and menopause, what are some of the biggest myths out there that are mm.
1: surrounding them? Yeah. One of the biggest myths I think is that you have to be 50. You know, that comes up a lot that people mm-hmm. think, "Oh, I can't be in perimenopause because I'm I'm not 50 yet." It can start anytime. It is more likely to start in your 40s, but about 5% of women probably, you know, will go into early peri- early menopause, meaning that they stop having a period by 45, which means that they could be perimenopausal as early as 35. And many women, especially in that 39-40-41 age range, Are noticing changes that are consistent with perimenopause. Um, The other big myth is that you have to be that you have to be missing periods to be in perimenopause. And that is absolutely not true. In late perimenopause, you're missing periods, but in early perimenopause, which can last for years, cycles may even be coming more closely together. Or they may start to vary by up to a week. So you might start to notice that your, you know, almost always 28 or 29 day cycle is now maybe more like a 25 to 35 day cycle. And you're never quite sure when to expect it. Um, I think those those would be the two biggest myths. And if I could add one more, It's that women will think that they have to wait until things are bad enough in order to seek support, Mm. That because it's natural, that it, because it's a normal phase of life that, you know, well, I'm just going to wait it out. Um, but I remind women that this can be 10 years of our life. Why would we give up a decade to sleepless nights, mood Mm. swings, feeling awful, and more importantly, not feeling like ourselves. We should never set the bar of feeling bad enough. Um, You know, in order to get help. So I think those would be my top three. And I, th- I think part of it too is
0: we grew up in a culture where we didn't even talk about our periods for a long time, right? We didn't talk about them together when like everyone was, men- like so many people around us were <laughs> menstruating, but we kept that to ourselves. And I think we have to learn to be like, you know what? This is something we should be talking about because I think it's also important for people to understand that even some of our practitioners and doctors don't have the education around perimenopause and menopause that they could and sometimes they tell us misinformation and i like to tell women your biggest support in this process is each other right and also knowing yes. and finding specialists and also knowing that what your friend over there might be experiencing is not going to be the same for you but you can still have a conversation about how you're feeling and what symptoms look like for you and what symptoms look like for them you know, just to gain
1: some perspective around that. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I really love how in the last, you know, few years especially, there's, you know, been this online community, I think, that has being, um, that's being created and maintained by women in this stage of life who just mm-hmm. aren't willing to put up with misinformation or lack of information or being told just to tough it out. Um, oh, yeah. And I applaud that. Yeah, so what when women come to you, What are women the most
0: concerned about when they come and talk to you? What is one of the main things? I mean, I know they're talking about multiple things with you, but what
1: is a theme that you see from them the most? Well, I don't know that it's one theme because, you know, everyone's experience of midlife and perimenopause and menopause is different. Mm -hmm. You have some people who have essentially no symptoms and you have some women who have all of them. Um, but certainly I think that hot flashes and night sweats are very disruptive to our sleep and our day-to-day life. And it really, you know, can it can really disrupt your day when you know, like, you know, for example, when I was in the throes of them, I think they're knock-on wood, you know, calming down now. But I knew that if I didn't sleep, if I was stressed, if I had more than two cups of coffee, if I had a hot beverage after 12, like I had all of these like things where If any of those went off kilter, I knew that I would have so many hot flashes and it's just so uncomfortable to feel like you're on fire (laughs) for three minutes, Um, (laughs) you know, or to wake up in the middle of the night and just be like soaked. And so. I think that for a lot of people, and and I was one of those women that I couldn't take hormone replacement therapy for a few different reasons. Um, I think it's a great option. I think it's safe. I don't think anyone needs to avoid it for fear. Um, But, you know, a lot of women, I think, come to me because I have some experience working with solutions that aren't based on hormonal therapy. And um, so in my case, that was really incorporating the phytoestrogen rich foods. So things like soy and flax and beans and lentils, Um, that was kind of my, my solution that really helped me through the thick of my perimenopausal years. So hot flashes are a big one. Um, Certainly body changes because, you know, again, I think there's, it feels like a switch gets flipped at 40 and the things things that you felt like we're working. It's just Mm -hmm. like, well, why isn't that working now? Mm -hmm. And so again, self-compassion understanding um, that's, that's a big part of it. And I I certainly think that mood and anxiety and um, what we like to call meno rage, which is, you know, the, the really, really strong bursts of anger that often happen. I've experienced it, um, you know, but often happen that feel I don't want to say out of character, because I do think that there's a, I don't feel like that's the right description, but I I think that for many women, it is unfamiliar, I guess Mm -hmm. is a better way to put it. And so they often come in saying like, I don't know what's wrong with me. Is this PMS? You know, why, why do I feel ragey um, all the time? Or why do I have no patience or, you know? So I think that those are the big ones that come up. But, you know, it can be everything from vaginal dryness and painful sex to waking up at three o'clock in the morning every night, Um, you know, or, you know, irritable bowel syndrome getting worse. And so they're feeling bloated all the time. So it really is a mix of things um, and hard to narrow down.
0: So there's a lot of body changes, right, that happen and people can experience these things. But what is a positive thing that you help reframe for, for women
1: going through this process? Oh, I love that. I think the biggest reframe is that this is an opportunity to not only change your default programming, um, but to really be able to embrace the possibilities of one, what life could look like if you weren't always thinking about food Mm -hmm. and weren't always trying to make your body smaller or weren't always thinking about what's wrong with my body or what I need to do with it. But there is, there's a confidence, I think that women in midlife experience, maybe because people don't have the same expectations of us. Um, I think that we are Uh, in an age and stage of life, where if we've had young children, they're a little bit older, you know, there's kind of changes in our own roles within family structures, whether that's taking care of aging parents, or, you know, you know, I think that it's just an opportunity that um, I don't want women to pass by. Because when you can, when you can ease into that with confidence, Hmm. because you now trust yourself and trust your body and feel like you know it, really know it because you've learned to listen and you've tuned out all of the messages that have been, you know, in your ear for 20 years, there's an indescribable confidence that, you know, you know what you want and you know what you don't want. And that isn't something I would want anyone to miss out on. It sounds
0: just like a breath of fresh air to me, right? (laughs) It is. I am kind of looking forward to that like I have, I'm already experiencing for me, like different symptoms already of perimenopause. I'm like, okay, I'm entering this right now. And I'm also thinking about, you know, I am in this process where my kids are starting to get a little bit older, a little more independent. And I am already thinking like, what do I want my life to be? Like, what do I dream for myself? I'm also being reflective on this aspect of youthfulness and And again, what our society tells us is beautiful and things. And I, I recognize that so much, I think of even my life, I would find something wrong with me or be like, I'm not as pretty enough or have that kind of language and narrative run through me and then look back at pictures and be like, why in the world did I think that, you know, look at how you are, look at the vibrancy in your face and, how you're smiling and different things like this. And I was like, you, I just think to myself, that needs to go away because it served no purpose. Then it serves no purpose now. And how can you just find ways to celebrate what you have learned, what you're continuously learning and how you can be present and show up in this world. And so it's like, I'm really actively finding this sense of reframing and also, like looking at beauty too in a completely different way of what makes us radiant, I would say,
1: you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it's just an opportunity. You know, a good friend of mine, you know, describes estrogen as the hormone that makes us not want to eat our babies. And as we get into midlife and our estrogen levels start to, you know, decline. That energy to nurture things, that doesn't have to be babies. It can be gardens, it can be dogs, it can be anything, but that that nurturing drive gets turned inward.
0: Mm. And
1: so it's like, you know, it's like, what, what do I want? What do I need? Mm-hmm. Um, what will nourish me? And like I said, it just kind of often aligns with a time in our life when we actually have the time and space to think about that again. hmm And so if we can get into that with confidence, it's even better. Right. So in terms of
0: nourishing, when we also start to lose estrogen, there are certain things that we do need to consider in terms of nourishing our body to help because we learn, we lose bone density. We have a, a lot of other things that can happen in our body that we have to look out for health-wise because of the decrease in estrogen. So what is the best ways that you coach people then to nourish their bodies with the decrease of estrogen as we're entering perimenopause?
1: Yeah. And I think that the basics of building a balanced plate still prevail, but there can be some, what I call like nutrition priorities that we focus on with gentle nutrition. So I think I already mentioned about phytoestrogen rich foods, um, you know, soy, flax, beans, and lentils. Um, you know, they're, they're very weak estrogens, um, but they can, kind of add to that little bit of a drop in the bucket that can, for some women can be very powerful at helping to reduce symptoms. But if nothing else, there is lots of evidence that those foods, maybe not just because of the phytoestrogens, maybe it's because they're also high in protein and fiber and other things, but then including those foods more often can help to, you know, help us maintain and support our health in midlife. Bones, like you mentioned are important, but believe it or not, once we're over the age of 40, it's really about reducing the rate of bone loss. And not building bone. So that's where, you know, having a joyful movement practice that, um, you know, allows you to have some weight bearing exercise and just, you know, being mindful of the things that, you know, that hasten um, bone loss. So Um, you know, so I often will talk about protein as being a gentle nutrition add-in that I love to help women include without having to count and measure and portion because it does help us to maintain muscle, which is something that men and women lose as we get older and maintain that is associated with better health as we get older. So, um, you know, how can we include those, gen- those gentle nutrition goals of whether it's protein, um, or phytoestrogens or fish oils or vitamin D, those are all things that can absolutely, you know, affect the trajectory of our health in midlife, but we don't necessarily have to approach them like we would as we were on a diet where it's a rule that you have mm-hmm. to have something, um, versus, you know, you want to have something. And if people don't like something, they don't have to have it. You don't have to have kale to be healthy. You don't have to eat fish to be healthy. You know, that's, cause that's not the goal. That's awesome. I appreciate that where you're like, you don't
0: have to have those to be healthy. There's other ways in which that can be achieved. So that's-
1: I saw the funniest thing the other day on social media where until 2013, pizza, I think it was Pizza Hut. Pizza Hut was the number one um, buyer of kale because they used it- um, in their buffets, as like to put over the ice as like decoration. Oh my gosh. I that was so hilarious. But until like 2013, kale was like decoration. That makes sense.
0: I've never put that together, but when you start looking at the buffets,
1: it's so true, right? Mm. Yeah.
0: It is sturdy. You
1: know? It is sturdy.
0: It's very Give sturdy. It that. Um, What have you noticed is the biggest shift then when, um, after working with the women that you've worked with?
1: I think it, it comes back to, we, it's finding that innate trust, Mm -hmm. you know, often in reflection, sometimes years later, people will say, you know. I always wondered growing up, like, is there really something wrong with my body? Because it's bigger. Like, is there something wrong with me? Am I doing something wrong? And then when we can go through this process and they come out the other side and they think there never was anything wrong with me. Mm -hmm. You know, my body has always been a good body. Mm -hmm. And when you really believe that, it just spills over into every aspect of your life and food now becomes your friend. And it's not something that you fear. And it's not something that you think about all the time. You welcome the pleasure of a delicious meal, yeah. um, you know, as an opportunity to meet your needs for pleasure and nourishment and joy and maybe entertainment and connection. Like food just now comes back as something that should be part of our life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's just that transformation of seeing body trust in action, mm. uh, because that's what the eye culture does is that it teaches us not to trust ourselves and not to trust our body. Well, that's what and I was so going to say. Like, it yeah, seems to
0: me help. like you're giving these women permission, right. To, yeah. to, to listen to that inner voice, because I think oftentimes women, especially are, are persuaded not to trust themselves in so many areas of our life and so getting to this point of recognizing um all of that's been bullshit if I can say that right yeah totally and so it seems like you're are saying no like listen to this wisdom that you already have inside of you
1: it's attunement it's just learning to listen you know Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and I, and I love seeing that, you know, um, I have a small group program that walks women through the undieting process over 40 and it, it runs like for six months time. So it's actually, you know, pretty intensive. And, you know, just let, this week, I had a message from someone who said, I went bathing suit shopping and it was enjoyable. And I never, ever thought that I could look forward to buying any bathing suit, hmm. um, you know, because they were just able to see that this is just something that I wear to go swimming. This is not yeah. like a, a value judgment of hmm. me or my body or my food choices or my intelligence or my worth. It's just a piece of clothing. And that person really said like i never could have believed that i could actually get to that point in actually just like three months so i think that we underestimate how much we can embrace change when that change is met with positive reinforcement when that change is met with this feels good this is helping me to trust my body trust myself to feel good about what i'm doing instead of making me feel bad at every turn
0: yeah that's awesome i love that you've been helping people reframe that from their lives. Cause it's just something that we need so badly. And I feel like it also, you know, it diminishes our power. I feel like collectively women hold so much power. Just, I mean, our bodies are amazing. with the things that they can do. And when I teach puberty and health class, I start off by the entire class. I start with, let's talk about what our bodies can do. What do we like about them? you know, and so we talk about things that bring us pleasure, you know, some of the things of some of people are like, I love that I can run. I love that I jump. I love that I can taste ice cream. And I was like, oh. yes, right. Our bodies are these vehicles. They do have some limitations for some, you know, some of us have limitations, um, with them and, but we can also experience so many things and they do so many incredible things. And then I'm like, let's learn more about the incredible things they do. And that's how I enter them into a puberty lesson because I love that. Right. Like we need to be full, I think filled, filled with wonder and um, be able to be curious about what's happening with ourselves and to then engage that process more. Instead of I feel like our generation has always been taught to fear things about our body.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Like straight away. And not to trust it. Right. That we shouldn't trust it. That you know, that it's trying to trick us. Mm -hmm. And that's just not the case.
0: Yeah. So we are almost to an end already, if you can believe that. So what story are you currently reframing for your life?
1: I loved this question and I, and I've thought about it and I think that I really am in that stage of reframing my identity as a mother, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and as a partner. So, you know, my, my kids are 12 and 15 almost 15. Um, you know, and for the first kind of 10 years, my husband and I were very much in this like, you know, tag team of parents, you know, like my, my youngest you are twins. So I had, you know, we had three kids under three at one point, like mm-hmm. the, you know, the first decade of our parenting life was like very much a all hands on deck, five alarm fire every day. <laughs> um, and there was a lot of needs, that I had that just couldn't be met because of the life stage that we're at. And so now that my kids are older, um, you know, and I'm, I think reframing my own relationship with myself as a mother, um, but also my relationship with them. And, and it's, and it's just fun to see it evolve. You know, it's I sometimes long for the baby days, but not often. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I often say like, I wish that I could like just teleport to like a day and just stay there for a few hours (laughs) Um, but yeah, they're napping quietly in
0: your arms. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's, that's what I'm reframing right now. That's awesome.
0: So where can people find you if they, if they're like, everything Jen said was great. And I would love to work with her. How can they find you?
1: So the best place is always Instagram because that's probably where I spend too much time, but it's also just where I keep (laughs) everything updated. Mm -hmm. Um, so at menopause.nutritionist, and there are links to my podcast, which, um, I think has a lot of, if people are midlife curious about, you know, not just the physical changes, but some of the emotional changes that happen too. I've had some really great guests on. Um, I think that that would be a, the right place for people to start.
0: Well, I appreciate you so much and your wisdom
1: and thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Thank you so much for having me.